We'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. That's where we're going to be this morning as we uh, continue in some summertime psalms. And we will be jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew uh, the Sunday after next. We'll be back in the Gospel of Matthew the Sunday after next, August 13th. We'll be back in Matthew. Is there something in your life that you're looking forward to? Something coming up that you're anticipating? Maybe, maybe you have a vacation plan that you're really excited about. Maybe there's a new movie you're going to go see. Uh, maybe, maybe you've got a hunting trip or a fishing trip coming up. Uh, maybe you're going to have some alone time right away from the kids. Right? Uh, maybe, maybe there's an approaching event, right? Hot, hot August nights is coming up, getting the cars ready. Right? We all know what it is to have a sense of anticipation. Right? Where there's something ahead of us, we're looking forward to it, we're excited. We just can't wait for what's coming up, right? You, the, the, the kids at Christmas time, that classic feeling. We're looking forward with gladness to that thing that is before us. Well, let me ask you, how often do you find yourself in that place of anticipation when it comes to the Lord's day? How often do you find yourself in that place of Glad anticipation when it comes to gathering with God's people on a Sunday morning. Well, in this morning's psalm, in Psalm 122, David focuses on the goodness of the gathered worship of God's people and how a delight in corporate worship and an understanding of what our, our corporate worship represents should lead us to have a commitment to Christian unity. David tells us why worship is so good. He talks about what worship represents. And then he will tell us, because that's so good and precious, why we should seek to preserve it through Christian unity. Let's read Psalm 122. <clears throat> a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet had been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Three major points we see in this psalm. Number one, in verses one and two, we see a delight in corporate worship. A delight in corporate worship. Verses three through five, we see a gathered reflection of redemption. And finally, in verses six through nine, a committed prayer for peace. Psalm 122 is one of the 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. We saw that right at the very beginning. And that's Psalms 120 through 134. That's the, the genre that they are, the Psalms of Ascent. And they're called this because Jerusalem was the place where the people of Israel would go to worship. The temple was there. And so they would all gather together there. But Jerusalem, you see, was on a hill. So when they would go to Jerusalem, they would have to walk up this hill to the temple, ascending to the city, if you will. And as they did so, they would sing these psalms 
of ascent. And when you read them, 120 through 134, uh, you see this focus on the people of God gathering together, on the city of God, right? On these, these, these great images. So the very genre of this psalm we're looking at this morning is focused on the people of Israel gathering together in Jerusalem for worship. As we look down to verse 1, we see David's delight in corporate worship. David's delight in corporate worship. And, and what I mean when I say that is not, uh, you know, like business casual worship, but worship with others. Worship with others. Corporate. The body. The body. He describes how his fellow Israelites encouraged him to go to Jerusalem, to the house of the Lord. Again, this is not private worship that's in view here. It's the gathered worship of God's people. And what godly people we see surrounding David here, they, they encourage him to join them not in their fun or their festivities or their idol worship, but in the worship of God. They say, hey, David, let's go up to the house of the Lord. Let's go worship him together. That's a great example. That's the kind of people you want to surround yourself with. That's the kind of people we should want to be that encourage others to gather for worship. If you see your brother or sister missing from church for a while, you should reach out to them, encourage them. Hey, let us go worship together. I'll pick you up. I'll come, I'll come be there at, at 10 o'clock. If you find your fellow Christian just doesn't want to go to church, they don't think it's for them, well, you should encourage them. Hey, come with me. Let's go to the house of the Lord. And David describes his response when he's encouraged to go worship. He was glad. I was glad when they said this to me, we read. The prospect of going to worship God with his people, that was something David was excited about. He's happy about it. He's joyful about it. Something he's looking forward to with eager anticipation. He was emotionally engaged at the prospect of corporate gathered worship. It wasn't a duty or a burden to David. He was glad. He was glad. Do you have the same glad anticipation for the gathered worship of God? Does the thought of Sunday morning make you happy? Are you emotionally engaged in gathering together to worship God? Now, emotions aren't everything, but they are something. I think many times uh, Christians approach Sunday morning without this sense of gladness. We know we need to do it because we're Christians, and Christians go to church, right? But but we do it without the eager anticipation that David had. We do it without this sense of gladness. And, and if we're honest, we wouldn't want to admit it, right? But if we're honest, how often are we more excited for what's happening after church than we are for church itself? So often Christians are not excited for Sunday morning. They don't have this gladness because they haven't been spending time in meaningful worship Monday through Saturday. You see, the greatest fuel for gladness for gathered worship is private worship. Right, think about David. Right? David's a great example here. He's, he's certainly not perfect, but he's a godly man who is glad to go worship with God's people. And we read the Psalms, and how many of them are written by David? A lot. Right? David is constantly worshiping God in private, by himself, when it's just him and the Lord. And we see this again reflected in his psalms. We read in Psalm 63, verse 1, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. That's what David was doing all the time. Or, or Psalm 145, verse 2, Every day I bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David worshipped God in private 
which made public worship a glad thing. If you have no interest in corporate worship, if you have no emotional engagement or excitement about gathering to worship God, the chances are that you're probably not really worshiping God Monday through Saturday. Maybe you read a devotional, maybe you open the Bible, and that's fine. But are you actually drawing near to God in communion and in praise, worshiping Him and reflecting on His goodness? When we do that, corporate worship simply becomes the next best thing, right? Or not the next best thing, the next level up, right? Public worship becomes an outpouring of our private worship. If you spend time worshiping and praising God on the weekdays, Sunday morning will be even better. It will be even better. So that's one reason why we may lack gladness is we're not worshiping God in private. Another reason that Christians tend to lack gladness in approaching gathered worship the Lord's Day is because you're not preparing for it. You're not preparing for it. Uh, Think about it. What does a normal Saturday night look like for you? It's going to be different for all of us probably, right? But what does it look like for you? If you stay up late, you're going to be exhausted on Sunday morning. It's hard to be glad when you're exhausted. If you're filling your mind with worldly things and filling your heart with worldly things and dwelling on that on Saturday night, that's just going to roll right into Sunday morning. It's going to be exhausting, stressful, burdensome, distracted. I have small kids. It's a hassle getting out the door sometimes on a Sunday morning, right? That can be very stressful. But if you prepare ahead of time, practically, right? There's practical things you can do. Go to bed early. Get the kids' outfits out the night before, right? Whatever it may be, practically, that's helpful. Preparing spiritually, turning off the TV on Saturday, spending time in prayer, reading the Word of God, preparing your heart to meet with the living God and His people you will find gathered worship to be far more delightful. You'll find it to be far more delightful. As it's been said, Sunday morning begins on Saturday night. And this isn't legalism. This isn't legalism. It's just a reality, right? If you eat junk food all the time, you're going to feel bad. If you eat healthy food all the time, you're going to feel good. Well, if you approach the Lord's Day well and prepared, it will be a delight to you. If you don't prepare for it at all, you will be stressed, exhausted, distracted, and burdened. So prepare for gathered worship with private worship, with preparation, and that will help you to be glad, like David was, about meeting with God in the midst of his people. And we see this eager anticipation continue into verse um, verse 2. Excuse me. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. We see this gathered group of Israelites. They've arrived at Jerusalem. They've come to the place they've longed to be at. Their feet are standing in the gates. They're at the entrance to the city. They're ready to worship. They're excited. There's no exclamation marks in in Hebrew, but, you know, it it gets the idea across in English for us. And, And notice the confidence that these Israelites have when they get to Jerusalem. They know they have a right to be there. They know that's where they belong. Our feet are in your gates. We're here, Lord, like you called us to be. We're ready to worship. We're ready to go. We know this is where we should be. And we get the sense that there's no place they'd rather be as well. Again, it's not just a duty, but it's a delight for them. Uh, Like the sons of Korah, right, in Psalm 84, verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. God's people belong together in his presence. 
We belong with each other in, really, as God's house. Can you imagine if, if all of Israel was in Jerusalem to worship God, but one or two Israelites just, just did their own thing? They said, ah, we're not really going to go to Jerusalem. Right? That would be their great loss. They don't belong on their own. They belong with the rest of their people. Right? They belong with the gathered assembly of Israel in the presence of God. Yeah, it's for this reason that the writer of the Hebrews in the New Testament instructs Christians not to neglect meeting together. Because we belong together. And there are abundant and extra spiritual blessings you don't get when you're by yourself. When you're lone wolf in it. You're missing out. Because God has given some blessings exclusively for the gathering of his people. He never designed the Christian life to be lived alone. It's never his purpose or his intention. And for this reason, again, there are unique blessings for us when we gather. So, brother, sister, you belong in the midst of God's gathered people. God's called you and covenanted with you that you would have access to him alongside the redeemed. Does that make you glad? Does it make you glad? Or do you value corporate worship? Do you anticipate Sunday mornings? Or has it just become routine? We need to put the worship back into Sunday morning worship. In the next few verses, we see David shift his focus to the goodness of the gathering place of God's people, to the goodness of Jerusalem in verses 3 through 5, a gathered reflection of redemption. Now, the earthly city of Jerusalem, of course, was um, where David lived, that's where the palace was, it's where the temple was. Uh, it was a real place on earth, it's still there today. Um, in the whole storyline of the Bible, the earthly city of Jerusalem is what we call a type. A type, it's typological, right? Just a big word that means it foreshadows something greater. It's not the end. There's something bigger that it's hinting to, it's pointing towards. While the ultimate or excuse me, the, the immediate context of this psalm is the earthly Jerusalem. The ultimate context is the new Jerusalem. It's the people of God throughout all the ages. It's the church, the assembly of all the elect from age to age. The writer of the Hebrews makes this connection in Hebrews 12.22 when he writes that believers have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come there now, he's saying, as a Christian. You're in the new Jerusalem now. Right? So when we look at these verses, we, we can't stop with the earthly city of Jerusalem in David's time. We need to go all the way to how these are fulfilled and applied in Christ to you and me as the church. David describes Jerusalem in verse 3 as a city that is built. It's a constructed city. The Old Covenant Jerusalem, of course, is a city built with human hands, but Spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is a city whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. David goes on in verse 3 to describe Jerusalem as a city bound firmly together. Bound firmly together. Now, earthly Jerusalem, of course, was a strong and well-built city. But these words have great spiritual significance to us. They speak of the unity that God's people are supposed to have bound firmly together. We see this kind of language in the New Testament. For example, uh, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 14 and 15, that Christians are to, uh, above all these, put on love, which 
binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. That's the same kind of picture there, that believers are to be bound together in love and in unity in Christ. That's a good and delightful thing. David's celebrating it here in verse 3. That's what we're called to pursue and seek and recognize in our own midst with other Christians. Now, I'm not saying that we overlook false teaching, for example, for the sake of unity. That's a false unity. It's a false unity. But when we have maybe secondary distinctions with other Christians or disagreements with other Christians that aren't related to the fundamental doctrines and the gospel itself, we can still have true unity. Uh, every three months, I gather together with other pastors in the area um, from different denominations. Some are Reformed Baptists, some are Dispensationalists, some are Presbyterians. We even had a Lutheran join us at our most recent gathering. Um, and we have a lot of different beliefs when it comes to certain aspects of the Christian faith, right? We're not all on the same page when it comes to baptism or church government or, or, or this or that, right? There's distinctions between us when we meet, and we're all very aware of that. But there is not division when we meet. Even though we have differences and distinctions, there's no division when we are getting together. Why? Because we're bound firmly in our love for Christ. We're in a full agreement on that. We're in full agreement on the gospel and what Christ has done and how a person comes to be saved. And we're united in our love for one another. We have that common unity in the gospel and the essentials of the Christian faith that keep those distinctions and differences from becoming divisions. So we are called to have this unity that we are bound firmly together even when we may have distinctions or differences. Calvin notes that by this, David teaches us that the church can only remain in a state of safety when unanimity prevails in her. And when being joined together by faith and charity, she cultivates a holy unity. So believers should likewise be bound firmly together. And we, we see this togetherness emphasized in the text. Not Lone Ranger stuff, but the saints together. And that's brought out even more in verse 4. David describes how Jerusalem was the place where all the tribes of Israel would go up to worship God together. From the north to the south, the east to the west in Israel, all 12 tribes would converge on Mount Zion upon Jerusalem to worship God in his temple for various uh, events and feasts like the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Booths. And that was God's decree for the people. It was his command for them. This is the place where I want you to gather to worship me. That's where he had chosen to dwell. And it was also a testimony for Israel. It was a reminder for them of what God had done in gathering them together. Uh, the picture of all the tribes going up to Jerusalem was a wonderful picture of God's salvation. Right? Think about it. Every time the 12 tribes gathered together, they were reminded about how God had rescued them from Egypt and brought them to the promised land to dwell in their midst. Every time they gathered together, they were reminded about how God had delivered them from this conquering nation or that conquering nation. Every time they gathered together, it was a reminder that God was keeping his promise to them, that he was faithful to redeem his people. They were reminded of that whenever they met in Jerusalem. 
And now, of course, we don't go to Jerusalem today to worship. In John 4, Jesus makes clear that that's no longer the place that you need to go, but rather God's seeking people everywhere to worship him in spirit and truth, wherever they might be. But the effect is still the same for us when we gather as Christians. We have that same picture of redemption that we're being reminded of. We're all from different walks of life. We all have different upbringings, different career paths, different interests. There's diversity in the body of Christ. When we are here together and we look around at these faces that we wouldn't encounter on a normal daily basis, most likely, we are reminded of what's brought us together. What is that? That's Christ. We are reminded that Christ has purchased a people for himself. And that includes you know, me and my brother and my sister and all these people we gather with. We look around and we are reminded of what God has done through Jesus. How he has given himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are really reminded of the gospel when we gather together. That Christ died for the sins of all kinds of people that we are united by a common faith in Him, that we have the same hope we look forward to in His resurrection. The church exists because Jesus died for her. And when we gather, when we see the faces and hear the voices and feel the hugs and the handshakes of our brothers and sisters, we see the reflection of God's redemption. It is a wonderful and amazing thing that we maybe overlook simply to speak with a brother or sister in Christ. You're encountering somebody that Jesus died for. What a wonderful thing to come face to face with a person bought by the blood of Christ. We get to do that every week when we gather. We're reminded of what we have in common that really matters, that's eternal. The most important things, right? So much conflict in the body of Christ happens because we forget that those things are there and that they are the most important things. We let other things become more important than that. And so often people pull away from the gathering of the saints because they forget just how wonderful these eternal things are. The regular gathering of God's people is a reflection of his ultimate redemptive design. The church is the center stage of God's plan of redemption. And I don't mean church buildings. I mean the people that Jesus has purchased. Right? God's plan goes far beyond just you as an individual. When we meet on Sundays, we have a visible demonstration and reminder of that. When we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we have a visible demonstration and reminder of that. When we see somebody baptized, we have a visible reminder and demonstration of that. A redemption. Again and again and again. The Christian life doesn't happen apart from the gathered people of God. It just simply doesn't. We look back to verse 4. What do these tribes do when they go up to Jerusalem? They give thanks to the name of the Lord. They go to worship God. They go to praise Him for what He's done. Are we not called to do the same thing when we gather? As we're reminded of the gospel through the preaching of the word, through the singing of songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through prayer, through fellowship. As we read in Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
our Sunday morning gathering is a reminder of God's mighty character and His mighty works, which should cause us to give Him thanks, to give Him praise, to glorify Him. That is the primary purpose of the church when we gather, to glorify God in worship. That's what we get to do when we gather together in a unique way. That's the purpose of the church. As we look down to verse 5, David describes the justice and order of Jerusalem. He speaks of how there are thrones set up for judgment in Jerusalem, as this was the place where the king lived. These are thrones of the house of David, of course, and uh, this is the, the line from which all the kings of Israel would come. And kings would often judge cases between citizens, and they would rule over the people and make these decisions. Uh, we know, of course, of King Solomon, judging between the two women with the babies. Of course, we don't have an earthly king ever since 1776, but rather Christ is the king of the church. Jesus is the king of his people. Christ is our king. Uh, Ephesians 1, and 23 says that the Father placed all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. Jesus Christ is the king of his church. There is no other authority over the church than Christ himself. And within the local church, Christ has chosen to govern and bring order to his people through qualified elders operating according to Scripture. Through the Word as it's preached and read, through baptism, the Lord's Supper, through prayer, through fellowship, uh, through discipline, through service to one another, Christ reigns in his church. Christ reigns as King. And we're reminded of that when we gather. Our worship is primarily focused to the glory of the Father, right, of course, as we exalt the name of Jesus Christ as King. We must have a Christocentric worship. So really, everything we do when we gather, even the very fact that we gather, if Jesus did not save you, you wouldn't be here this morning, right? That's kind of the bottom line. If Jesus did not save you, the church would not exist and there would be no Sunday morning gatherings. The fact you're here is a reminder and a reflection of God's redemption. And that is good. That is good. Gathering together for worship is Good. And in light of this, what should our response be? If worship is so good, if the gathering of God's people is so good, what should our response be? David models this for us in the last section of the psalm. A committed prayer for peace. A committed prayer for peace. As we look down to verse 6, we see uh, really the only uh, command, we could say, of the entire psalm. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is so precious, because gathering there is so good, David says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. For David and his fellow Israelites, they would have prayed probably for internal unity against rebellion against the king. They would have prayed for protection from their enemies, that, that the walls and towers of Israel wouldn't be laid under siege. They would have prayed for protection from sickness and idolatry. What does it mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in the context of the church? Well, it means to pray for unity and sound doctrine. The biblical teaching would be preserved. It means to pray for protection from Satan and his schemes. It means to pray for continued love in the body of Christ. It means to pray for just what it says, 
peace amongst God's people. As David says, verse 6, it means to pray that those who love Jerusalem, that those who love God's people would be secure. That's very much like what Paul seeks for the Colossians in Colossians 2.7, that they would be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, secure, rooted in Christ. Those are the kinds of things we should be praying for. How often do you pray for the peace of the local church? How often do you pray for the peace of the local church? How often do you pray for the peace of Fellowship Bible Church? for our unity, for our doctrine, for our love for one another. How often do you pray for that? If, if this is not a regular prayer for you and, and you attend here, it should be. It should be. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And David goes on to say that he, he will pray for Jerusalem's peace for the sake of his brothers and his companions, down in verse 8, for those who gather with him in Jerusalem. What does David realize? He realizes that the peace of Jerusalem has a direct impact on the well-being of his fellow Israelites. And brothers and sisters, we must have the same realization. A peace in the church isn't just about us and how comfortable we might be. Peace in the church has a direct impact on the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. Should we not also pray and pursue unity for the sake of others? that God has placed us in fellowship with, that they might grow in Christ, that they might love worshiping Him alongside us? Should we not pray for peace in the church that Satan's plans for division, and that his attempts to devour the people of God might be thwarted? Yes, we should. We should pray for these things for the sake of our brothers and our sisters. David's desire for peace is for the well-being of the people of God. He's focused on others. He's focused on others here. And our prayer should follow this when we consider the local church. But that's not even really the ultimate reason for David's prayer for peace. Look down to verse 9. David tells us that he prays for the peace of Jerusalem for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. His prayer for peace is ultimately a God-centered prayer for peace. The house of the Lord, the temple, in, in David's day was where the glory of God dwelt uh, during the time of the Old Covenant. So to pray for the sake of the house of the Lord our God would be really to pray for the sake of God's glory. David's praying for the peace of God's people for the sake of God's glory. Because when the people of Israel are united together and worshiping God together in unity, God was glorified and He was pleased. But when that wasn't the case, like in the time of the judges where everyone just did what was right in their own eyes, or in the time when the kingdom was divided with the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, those were dark, dark, dark times where the glory of God was trodden down by idol worship and, and sin. So it is in the church. We must pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the peace of the church, that God might be most glorified in His church. We must pray for the peace of God's people that God might receive the maximum amount of glory that we would be a gathering of believers that can glorify Him as much as we possibly can for His sake. Is God glorified in a church that, um, that doesn't care about His Word? No. 
No. Is God glorified in a church where people don't love one another? No. Is God glorified in a church where there's backbiting or fighting? No. That doesn't bring him any glory at all. We must be watchful against such things. No, God is most glorified in his church when his people worship him according to his word together as one. United by the love of Christ. As Romans 15, 5-6 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that you may together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our ability to glorify God as a church is contingent upon our unity as a church. Our ability to glorify God as a church depends on our unity as a church. Not our uniformity, not our uniformity, but our unity. We may have differences, we may disagree on things, we may take different perspectives on non-essential things, but we must be unified in Christ. And look what David says at the very end of verse 9. For the sake of God's house, for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of God's people. David doesn't just pray for the good of Jerusalem, but he says, I will seek your good. I will seek your good. There's a sense of actively looking for, actively seeking to bring this about, to be a worker for peace that David displays here. David's pursuit of peace doesn't end with prayer. It starts with prayer. But what flows out of his prayerfulness? Action. Action. And so often we, we, we can have this superficial peace on the outside, right? A nice smile or what have you. But in our hearts, we may not actually feel that way. Right? We may feel too awkward about somebody to have meaningful Christ-centered fellowship with them. But just because you're not yelling at somebody doesn't mean there's genuine peace between the two. I know we as Christians are called to pursue peace, to be not passive in that process, not to wait for peace to come to us, but to actively pursue real, genuine peace. Psalm 34, 14 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Romans 14, 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Hebrews 12, 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13, Be at peace among yourselves. Ephesians 4, We're called to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, Jesus in Matthew 5, it says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Pursue peace. Pursue peace. And then come and offer your gift. The Bible again and again and again says we are to be active in being peacemakers. We are to pursue it, to work for it, to be eager to maintain it. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to pursue peace in the body of Christ. And if you neglect that when it is needed, you're actually passively contributing to strife and conflict. Even when there's tension just in our hearts, that's an issue that needs to be resolved. 
because it hinders the unity of God's people. We want more than just an external unity, amen? And even though pursuing peace is difficult sometimes, and seeking peace in Jerusalem is, is not always easy, when it is done prayerfully, biblically, and lovingly, it produces a beautiful result. Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Friends, do you love gathering for worship with God's people? If not, what's getting in the way? What's getting in the way? And are you willing to make some changes that you might enjoy that more? Do you pray and pursue peace? Are you committed to peace with the gathered people of God? If not, what's getting in the way? And are you willing to seek God's help with that? And when we are not committed to these things, we, we miss out on so much blessing. But when we are committed to them, like David was, it becomes much easier to say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. A day where we have gathered together at Jerusalem, so to speak, Lord, where we have met together to raise our voices as one to the glory of your name. Where we have met together to receive your word. Where we have met together to fellowship with one another. Father, would you help us not to take the blessings of Lord's Day gathered worship for granted. But Father, may that be a treasure to us. May we truly see Sundays as the best day of the week. Not because it affords us more time to do what we want to do, but rather because it's the day that we get to gather together with those that you redeemed alongside of us. To be reminded of what you have done. To be blessed in a unique way. And as an opportunity to build up the peace of your people. Father, we pray that you would help us to examine our own thoughts and desires and motivations when it comes to gathering with your people. And Father, would you show us where we've been prioritizing other things above that. Father, we pray that if we have tensions or conflicts with others in the body of Christ, that you would guide us in resolving those. That there might be a deeper peace in Jerusalem and that more glory might be given to your name. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And that every Sunday morning we have so many rich reminders of that. Lord, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.